0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee. And whether you are with us in person or on the live stream, we want to offer a very warm welcome to you. We are thrilled you have chosen to worship with us this morning. If we could ask, uh, well, if you're visiting with us today, we offer a warm welcome to you. We hope you grabbed our... Visitor goodies, enjoy that tumbler, what is that? You can put like 20 ounces of your favorite beverage in those. Those are neat things, so grab that. And for all of you, if you would, and again, I'm gonna pick on my friends at the end of the aisle, get the friendship pad started, pass it down to your friend, sign in. And this is, we don't embarrass anyone. This is, I like to say, if you're breathing, okay? You're invited to sign the friendship pad. We want to know who you are, and uh, our heart is to begin a friendship and a relationship with you all, as the vision of the church is loving God, loving each other, and loving our community. I want to welcome Haley. Am I pronouncing it? Heinen? Did I say that right? I want to make sure. Nothing's worse than if I say your name wrong. So, Haley is substituting for Amy, who is out of town in New York City this week, and it is always a joy and a pleasure and a privilege, Haley, to have you with us. You're so talented, and we're grateful for your serving the Lord with us amongst us here at Lake Oconee this morning, and so welcome. A couple of brief announcements. I'm still highlighting the new beginnings, and we're just excited. As nursery has gotten started, we have volunteers. We still need more. See Tommy after the service if you're interested in that. Uh, I think Evie had up to four kids in the children's Sunday school class this morning. Harold, you had a bunch, didn't you, with, with you? Five. There, I like sh- no competition between you and Evie, though. We're not going to do that. We're just going to praise the Lord that we see ministry going. And I almost had no room in the, in the choir room. I said to Dick Forrester, I said, we may need to look for another room. So I'm excited that Sunday School's back and going. See, we're moving forward. We're doing things. We're excited about these things. And so we want to share that excitement with you all. You have other announcements of things that are going on in the life of the church. I would encourage you, as I do most every week, not during the service, but maybe after the service, familiarize yourself with the things that are in the bulletin, the things that are going on in the life of the church. And now let's focus our hearts. We're here to celebrate the Lord, to celebrate His grace, His mercy, His resurrection, to celebrate who He is. Um, I am so appreciative of this particular congregation. You all have showered such love upon Evie and I, and so I give you thanks for the cards and the remembrances and the condolences that you shared with us in the loss of my father. We are blessed by this congregation and so, so grateful. And so it's a joy and a privilege to be back with you this morning to be able to worship the Lord together. And so now let's focus our hearts on Christ as the prelude is played. Our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud, clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Lord, let all that is within us praise Your most holy and heavenly name. Forgive us, Father, that our affections can be so much on other things that we fail with every breath to declare Your glory and praise who You are. We ask that You would enlarge our hearts Unite our hearts. Join our hearts together that with one mind, heart, and voice we may praise your holy name and we invoke your presence amongst us in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. As we begin to worship this morning, please stand as we sing together Amazing Grace. For our confession of faith this morning, we will together as one body, as one people of God, acknowledge what it is we believe, and we'll be utilizing the Apostles' Creed this morning. So, let us together, friends, confess our faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let us stand and sing together our song of praise this morning. Here I am to worship. Encourage you with the lyrics of some of these praise songs to let them be part of our prayer. I don't know about you, but I know that I want to find Christ functionally. I know we believe this in our heads. I know intellectually nobody's going to say they don't find Christ altogether lovely and altogether worthy. But if we're honest, wouldn't we have to say functionally we find other things more lovely than Christ? our sports team winning, a good meal, things going the way we want them to go. So, I don't know about you, but I know my heart needs to come clean. My heart needs to see and embrace and functionally have my greatest affection being on the loveliness and the beauty and the goodness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have the gift now and the privilege of communing with him in a time of prayer. And So we will let the Lord's Prayer be our guide. We will say that together, and then I will lead us in our pastoral prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. We thank you, Father, that you are our Father, that you are altogether lovely and altogether worthy, and may you be altogether wonderful to us, not only as individuals, but as a body as your body, that we would find you altogether wonderful for the care you give us, that you are our good shepherd, that you protect and you provide and you nourish and you sustain and you feed your body. We thank you for the fatherly care and your fatherly love that is upon us at all times, that even no matter how many times we may try to run and hide from it, that we can't hide from you. And I do pray for our hearts to hallow your name, to long for and ache for and seek your kingdom and your kingdom to come, to long for the consummation of your kingdom, where everything will be as it ought to be, where there will be paradise and perfection at every level of existence, where the life of heaven and the life of earth are finally reunited, and we have glorified bodies where we live in our resurrection mode, empowered and governed by your Spirit, enjoying and communing with you and with each other with perfect freedom, perfect vulnerability. Lord, we long for our inheritance, and we pray that while we were here on earth, we would commit ourselves to doing your will on earth as it is in heaven, that we would embody your values, that we would be committed to what you instruct us to be and to do, loving you with our entire beings, loving our neighbor as we do ourselves, that we would bear the fruit of the Spirit, that we would display accurately and manifest who you are, that we would do your will and not our own, that we would be willing to die to ourselves, our rights, our preferences, our wants. And so we ask, Father, for this day to have our daily bread. As our good shepherd, feed us spiritually, physically. Nourish and nurture us. And please forgive us as we forgive those who've hurt us, who've perpetrated sin against us. Help us to remember that we are both victims and agents. We have both sinned against people and been sinned against. And Lord, as we cultivate your grace in our lives, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the evil of our own selfishness. Deliver us from the evil of injustice. Deliver us from the evil of our own taking care of ourselves to the neglect of our neighbor. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. And we pray, Father, for those of our body who are hurting who are going through trials, we think of Carol Walker in the hospital and we lift her before you and pray for her and Charlie. We continue to pray for Harold and Marilyn Sowell. And there are many who are hurting and we lift them all up to you, recognizing that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. So may we be about your glory. May we be about your name. Thank you for your presence here amongst us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amy asks us to... uh to sing something this morning that would reflect God's word that we'll be looking at today, the righteousness of Christ and that's what we're here to um, lift him up. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be made the righteousness of Christ and that's what this medley speaks of.
0: and Jan, thank you so much for leading us. In song. What a beautiful, I always have to reflect on the words to those hymns. So, come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. What is your heart naturally in tune with? Kind of raises that question, doesn't it? Again, it's kind of like what I was talking about earlier with the affections of our heart. Do we find him to be most lovely and most worthy and most wonderful to us? Or are our hearts tuned, my heart is tuned to wanting to be in control. My heart is very tuned to comfort. Am I personally comfortable? I need worship, and I would wager to guess we all need worship to shape and form us that our hearts would be tuned to sing of God's grace. So let's ask God to do that this morning, to retune our hearts, to retune our hearts to sing his grace. Father, as we open your word this morning, we do pray that you don't merely give us information, but you tune our hearts to sing about your reign of grace, that our hearts are prone to wonder, and that we would in this time come back to you Because you long to have us, you love us, you like us, you want us, you delight in us. And so, Father, teach us your word. Holy Spirit, be your teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, we are this morning closing out Romans chapter 5. And so, if you have Bibles, I would encourage you to open them. I'm reading verses 18 through 21. Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 18, says, Therefore... so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Friends, this is God's word given by the triune God of love because he loves us. Well, two weeks ago when we introduced this part of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, I shared a story that I had read that I think well illustrates what the apostle is trying to get across, what he is trying to convey here in this particular pivotal passage. So if you weren't here, that's good. You're getting to hear the story for the first time. And if you were here, I'm going to guess you forgot it. And it focuses on the main point of the passage well. So yes, I didn't forget that I gave the story. I'm doing this intentionally. I am repeating this particular story. The story was told of a sculptor who looked at his work, and he was overjoyed with it. He was pleased with his work. He made this gorgeous statue that was displayed in the town square. The subject of the statue lived in this little seaport all his life. He had become well-known because he organized the local Coast Guard service, and it turned into not just being well-known but absolute fame when at great risk to his own life, he had rescued virtually single-handedly a boatload of people who were caught off the rocks in a winter storm, and so the town was grateful. The townspeople were overjoyed, and they commissioned a statue to be built of him in the town square. So the sculptor built this sculpt, this uh, piece of art, and it wasn't long before trouble arrived. Here come these youths. The next summer, they come to town, for a laugh, they're going to play jokes, they're rampaging up the street, laughing at everybody, and when they come to the statue, they kind of go, now our real fun begins. They daub it with paint, they throw stones at it, they take turns running, jumping, and kicking it with both feet in the air, and after a few minutes of this, the statue, which had not been made to withstand such ill treatment, snaps off its base, crashes into the road, and smashes into pieces. Now, you imagine the feeling, the emotions of the townspeople, the town council, and they're thinking about their response. Rage is building in them. They called in the sculpture. They're determined not to be beaten. We won't be defeated. They said they want the statue to be remade exactly as it had been. But The sculptor had a better idea. Yes, he would remake it, but in a much tougher, much more sturdy, much better material. It would look better as well. He wasn't just going to put things back as they had been. This was the opportunity to do something really spectacular. Now friends, this relates to this particular passage where Paul is contrasting the two most influential men in human history. And no, they're not Tom Brady and whatever other sports figure you want to pick. The two most influential men in history are Adam and the second Adam, the greater Adam. The Adam we're here to worship this morning, Jesus Christ. And redemption is not simply about Jesus restoring and making the same what we had in the original garden. No, God has done far, far more, far, far greater in and through Jesus Christ. And so this morning we are looking again at the reign of grace, and I want to look at it from two perspectives in this text. This is a really simple text to take notes on. Four verses. Verses 18 and 19 is about how the reign of grace brings a new status. And verses 20 and 21 is how the reign of grace brings us the end of the story. A new status and the end of the story. Take a look with me at verses 18 and 19. Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass, he's referring to the sin of Adam there, led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, and he's looking at the entirety of Christ's person, work, life, death, resurrection, one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, I want us to go back to our story. See, I told you I was doing this on purpose. Remember our story? Because the author continues. See, two weeks ago, and I repeated it this morning, I only read you part one of the story. So here's the conclusion of the story. Instead of a statue being knocked over and replaced, think now of two different statues facing one another across a town square. The first is a sad, grim, despondent figure. It is the death mask of a once noble character who, through a life of folly and dissipation, bears now on his face the unmistakable signs of death and decay that result from such a course. The second statue across town is filled with life and joy and passion and excitement as if at any moment it may spring from its base and do acrobatic tricks across the town out of sheer exuberance. And as they relate to our passage, these two statues can be said to represent the two humanities that Paul is describing here in verses 18 and 19. We have to get out of our individualistic set of thinking. This is why I was so glad Jan and Russ sang Covenant Keeper because covenant is at the heart of how God relates to us. He relates to us in a covenantal way which unites us and brings us together as a people. And so Adam and Christ represent two communities, two peoples, two humanities. Not just individuals, but two corporate entities, the one in Adam and the other in Christ, the two respective, representative covenant heads of their covenant humanities. And verse 18 states the inference from what came before. Notice it starts with the word therefore. Remember, I'm teaching you how to read the Bible. Whenever you read the word therefore, think, look back. What preceded it? What came before? Verse 18 begins with, therefore, and it contrasts for us the consequences, the results of these two representative men, Adam and Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The results are for the one humanity, all in Adam, condemnation, and for the other, all in Christ, not every individual that's ever lived, but all who are in their covenant head, Jesus, justification and life. Now, we need to understand these terms. What do condemnation and justification mean? They are both legal terms that refer to our status. They mean your position, your legal position before God, your status. It is not whether you are a good person or a bad person. It's not whether you do good things or bad things. It's not whether you are as good or bad as you possibly could be. It is your position or your status before God. All of humanity are in one of the other of these positions. You are either under judgment and condemnation That doesn't mean you may feel guilt, you may not even be aware of it, but you're under judgment and condemnation or you are under grace. You are justified. Now, what is Paul talking about here? He is talking about the essence of what it means to be a Christian. One act of righteousness that leads to justification. Let's remind ourselves what the word justify and justification means. Because the word, English word justified doesn't mean to change something. That's why we struggle, by the way, with sometimes doing the same thing, the same sin, the same struggle, over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, it may even seem sometimes we're worse now than we were when we first became... Have you ever noticed that? I said to Evie driving in this morning, I said... I think I'm more anxious and worried sometimes now than I was when I at age 30 and 35. That doesn't make sense. You think I'd be getting better. And it just doesn't happen. And that's for a lot of reasons. But see, the English word justified doesn't mean all of a sudden, holier than thou. That's why, oh, to come across holier than thou, I think nothing stinks more in the nostrils of God than that. Self-righteousness utterly, utterly stinks in the nostrils of God. The English word justified does not mean to change something, does not mean to change the thing. It means to change our view of the thing. I know I've told this story before, but it's the best illustration on this. It's one that's given by Tim Keller in his teaching on justification. And he tells the particular story of a particular event in a high school where a teenager in the hall of his high school suddenly hauls off and slugs somebody. So picture these two youths, these two kids in a hall of a high school, one grabs the other and he just utterly clubs them, wallops them, knocks the guys out, knocks him flat, knocks them cold. You know what it's like in a high school. Remember what it's like in a high school? Here, People rush, they come up to him. they're all right, and the principal who at least saw part of what happened, rushes up, says to the kid, you're done, you're out of here, you're expelled, we'll see you next year, you're done. And what did the kid say? He stopped and he said, would you please look in that other kid's pocket? And he looked in the pocket and there was a gun. And his hand was on the gun, the knocked out kid. And so the kid said, yes, absolutely. My behavior was I slugged him and I knocked him out. He was about to shoot somebody. Now, what did he do? He justified his behavior extremely well. He did not change his behavior one bit. He absolutely slugged the kid. What he did was change our view of the behavior. He justified the behavior, which, by the way, we do this in relationships all the time. All the time we are self just, we are chronic self justifiers. We are constantly trying to change, I'll just pick on spouses for a second. We are constantly trying to change our spouse's view of a certain behavior. Honey, I wish you would take the trash out. And what does the husband say? I'm doing the best I can. Can't you be a little understanding? Of course, he doesn't at all say to the you know, the behaviors he's talking about is accurate. I did not take the trash out. What is he trying to do? He's trying to change his wife's view of the behavior. Change my view of my failing to take the trash out by understanding I'm doing the best I can. Take note of how often we try to justify ourselves. We're not changing our behavior, but we're wanting to change how our behavior is thought about, how our behavior is regarded, how it is treated, how it is viewed, the status. We want the st- our status to change because of how we are viewed. Now, here's the amazing thing, the essence of what it means to be a Christian. The reign of grace brings a totally new status, that of justified. And that means, see, again, that is a legal declaration. That means God pronounces a judgment upon us. Our behavior could be horrific. Maybe we are the most selfish people in the world, and it's going to take a long time to change that stuff. Guess what? You might still be selfish. But if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, if you're under him as your covenant head, and you're in him, this is a free gift. God views you. Your status, you are regarded and dealt with and treated by God. It's a pronouncement of two things, that you are forgiven and that you are righteous. Now, pause there for a second. Our record is given to Christ. Now, what is our record? Well, I just, I've just i been sharing some of my record. My record is, see, I could go to Jesus and say, Jesus, here's my record. I am gifted at worry. I am super talented at anxiety. I am absolutely, I'm a hall of famer when it comes to being a control freak. I am nobody. I have it on Brady. The You want to talk about goats and greatest of all time? I'm the greatest of all time at being a perfectionist. And my behavior hasn't changed. But when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that means Jesus on the cross is treated as he were Jeff the anxious, Jeff the worrier, Jeff the perfectionistic, Jeff the chronic selfish person, Jeff the control freak. I'll let you fill in the blank of what your record is. I picked on me this morning. But we give our record. This is, friends, what it means to be a Christian. This is why my heart is I would want everyone to be a Christian. If you're sitting here today and you're not sure you're a Christian, or you know you're not a Christian, I implore upon you to take a look at giving your record, whatever your record might be. You might think there's no way Jesus could ever forgive my record. I'm telling you that's not true. Jesus longs to forgive you. He waits to be gracious to you. He exalts himself to be merciful to you. He loves to hang out with real hard-boiled sinners, not the people who pretend they're good, He longs to be gracious to you. That's why the scriptures, the psalmist, for instance, says, as far as the east is from the west. I think that's longer than my arms. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Or I love this out of Micah chapter 7, when he says, who is a God like you? Talk about just starting to worship. This is how we should, this, this should be our call to worship. Who in the it's like you're dumbfounded. This is when you know, by the way, you're starting to get the gospel. When it is so counterintuitive, you kind to of go, who in the world is a God like you who pardons sin and overlooks, forgives the iniquity of his people? And Micah uses the imagery. He says, you've taken our sin and you've hurled it into the depths of the sea. My friend Paul Miller, Jack Miller's son, used to say, he said, our sins are thrown into the bottom of the ocean and a sign is put up on shore, no fishing allowed. How many of us like to go fishing and fish up all our faults, all our flaws, all our foibles? And how many of us like to go fishing for the flaws and sins and foibles of others, by the way? Where, if you're in Christ and you're justified, the reign of grace, the sign is put up on shore, no fishing allowed. But that is only the first part. See, this legal pronouncement, the reign of grace brings a new status. Your status is not just your record is given to Christ, but the other part of the pronouncement is his record is given to you. We get his perfect record. We get his righteousness. This is what justification means. God made him who knew no sin. Jesus was never a sinner, but he was legally treated as a sinner. That's the first part. So that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That means this legal status. This is who you are, whether you feel it or not. Your feelings about it are irrelevant, but your status before God is that you are just as righteous as Jesus is. God looks at you and He, he, justification is to change your view of a behavior or a person. God's view of you now is that you're just as gorgeous, just as beautiful, just as striking, just as obedient. Just as loving as Jesus is. Does that blow anybody's mind away? Because that's your status if you are a Christian. Now, look what else it says. The text says justification and life. Justification leads to life. That means it leads, life brings freedom. Do we recognize how free? that we are? Galatians chapter 5 says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And then we're given a command. I wonder how often we think about or obey this command. It says, therefore, stand firm and do not let yourselves be yoked again by a yoke of slavery. We're commanded to stand firm in our freedom. I read this quote in our adult Sunday school class. So if you were there, you're getting to hear it again. And if not, here it is. See, I do believe we learn by repetition, by the way. See, I'm married to a teacher. She teaches me well. We learn by repetition. Steve Brown, PCA pastor, in his book, A Scandalous Freedom, says, you are really and truly and completely free. There is no kicker. There is no if and or but. You are free. You can do it right or wrong. You can obey or disobey. You can run from Christ or run to Christ. You can choose to become a faithful Christian or an unfaithful Christian. You can cry, cuss, and spit, or laugh, sing, and dance. You can read a novel or the Bible. You can watch television or pray. You're free, really free. And then he says, perfectionism robs you of your freedom. It is not very smart to keep trying to do something you can't do and never will be able to do. Your status is free. Secondly, the reign of grace is the end of the story. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. Now, Paul here, remember, give you again some context of the church at Rome. The church at Rome is kind of this cosmopolitan, diverse church in this co- it's in the empire. It's in the city, the holy city of the empire there in Rome. So it's made up of both Gentiles and Jewish people. So what is... Paul doing now, he's kind of going to address his Jewish audience and address the so-called elephant in the room, the law. And he says this, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. One commentator put it this way. He says, into one segment of the first model of humanity, the Adamic model, there has come a new and disturbing note. The law came in alongside. Why has Paul introduced the Jewish law here and what is he saying about it? This writer says it is a revealing moment. Many Jews at the time, including his own former self, would have seen the law as the beginning of the new model of humanity. In other words, the law was the marker. It was that which identified them as the people of God. Israel was called to be different from the rest of the world. They were called to be the light to the nations, to teach the covenant and the promises and all of that to the rest of the surrounding world. And God gave his people the law to make this a reality. But the point Paul is making, here's what he's saying, is that when the law arrived in Israel... So far from marking the start of a new type of humanity, it merely intensified the problem of the old type. The law exposes or draws attention to sin, but by itself is powerless to do anything about stopping it. I've used this illustration before. It's like think of the law as kind of a white glove that you put on. And you're putting on this white glove, and you go to somebody's home. Pretend I said I'm coming to your home today, and I'm not giving you any prior notice. You don't have a chance to clean things up. And you see me come in, and I put on these long white gloves, and I take the glove, and I go like this to one of your counters or the bathroom. And I take a look at it. Paul is saying that is what the law is on our hearts. The law intensifies and exposes what's there. So instead of being the marker that helps us to be the new humanity, it intensifies and exposes what's already there within Jewish person, within Gentile people. We all stand in need of the reign of grace. The giving of the law. Think about Israel's actual history traced through the Old Testament. Certainly didn't lead to more righteousness, did it? It led to so much sin that it precipitated God's judgment in the exile of his covenant people. But look at what Paul says. Look at the text. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, we'll begin to address the natural question next week. Well, wait a second. If the increase of sin makes grace abound all the more, I know how I can really please God. Oh my goodness, I'm going to please God all over the place. You can't possibly out-sin me. I'm going to go nuts with sinning because grace will abound all the more. And of course, and we'll, we'll be camping in Romans 6 for a few weeks. That is not the point of what he's talking about. Verse 21, as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reign of grace is the only hope for the world. The reign of grace is the only thing that can change people. And do you want to know where the reign of grace lives today? In the church of Jesus Christ, in his bride, in his people who have the status of being justified. We are the people of grace and we ought to be displaying Grace all over the place. We are called to the reign of grace. The church now is to be sort of this preview society of the coming age where his kingdom has come in its fullness. We make the invisible reign of grace visible by how we live and specifically by how we live in relationships. How we love. The reign of grace is invisible. We make it visible by how we treat people by forgiveness, by justice, by love, by truth, by mercy, by kindness. We are called to make the invisible reign of grace visible by how we live with each other and treat each other. Paul, in a sense, is expounding on Jesus' words, all men will know you're my disciples. All men will know you are under the reign of grace by your love for one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reign of grace. And thank you that we have the joy and the privilege to offer that hope to the world. Lord, thank you that the reign of grace brings us a new status. We may not feel like it. We may not feel all that forgiven. We may not feel all that righteous, but that's how you regard us. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. And, Father, it's the end of the story. The reign of grace is the final word. Help us to display and make visible the reign of grace to to the watching world before us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let us stand and sing our closing hymn this morning. now receive the Lord's benediction. And as you are blessed by the Lord, may you receive this blessing in order to be a blessing to the world around us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.